for him. All right. Lafayette Lee has decided to return to the virtual bar. Uh, before we get into him and all of his brilliant takes on a lot of the stuff that I, I have to ask him back on for, clearly this is a discussion that's fueled entirely by the Native American spirit for me. I don't know about Lee. Lee, you don't imbibe, do you? I do not. Yeah, he doesn't imbibe. So this is good. You'll, you'll get a kick out of this one then. So tonight, uh, along my travels last month, when I went across the country to Illinois and back, I got to stop in Wyoming. Uh, so I'm doing a little Wyoming whiskey. Uh, it's called Hole in the Wall. This one is exclusive to the state of Wyoming only. And it, it's a pretty cool story, which is why I was going to ask Lee your opinion on this last <laughs> sentence. But uh, so at the turn of the last century, bank robbers, moonshiners and seducers thrived in the isolated territory that is now Hot Springs County, Wyoming. The outlaw trail was well-traveled during this lawless times and saloons were, struck, were sought out as the hubs of activity, legal or not. So the hole in the wall was originally established as Skinner's, appropriately named from the notorious mountain hideout to the east, built in the center of Thermopolis, Thermopylae, one of them. I don't know. Do you know that word? No, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the joint history of these saloons includes patrons, Butch and Sundance, shooting irons, and a contempt for temperance, Lee. Lee, I, I don't think you have a contempt for temperance, do you? No, no, not at all. <laughs> what was interesting, though, like the temperance movement, that was a big time uh, when bourbon production was starting back in Kentucky. Like, I used to read some stories. Uh, I read a, a history of bourbon and how, uh, <laughs> like, some of the leaders of the temperance movement would go in and, and smash you know, windows and locations where whiskey was being sold and all. It's pretty fun. <laughs> Seems like a good Yeah, time. it's like it's like the first the first uh, wave of woke, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. It's pre-BLM, I guess, but when they were smashing windows and all, which is actually pretty funny. So Lafayette Lee's here. He's back. Um, if you didn't hear him the first time, it's too bad because it's it no longer exists on the record. Um, but maybe if you send Lee enough money, he'll uh, allow me to send you the, the, the copy of it. Probably not, though. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I went back and looked at our notes. And so it was uh, September of 2020, right? So you and I talked a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of a way for Gen Z to get involved in the political process, uh, and then kind of like what you foresaw happening. And honestly, man, it's been a weird almost year and four months since we talked in terms of, I think, kind of how we thought things were going to go and kind of to where we are now. Um, yeah, I was I was actually just I was thinking about that the other day about the last time we talked, because I think I anticipated that the violence would get a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that was actually an area where you and I disagreed. And I think you I think your take was correct. I think I was. I was a little, I don't know if I was a little black, too black pilled at that time, but I, I definitely thought things were going to get a lot more violent than they did. And I don't know, maybe if Trump had won the election, they would have, Yeah, but I think, I think you were right. Well, I, that's what I wanted to ask you though, because it, it's kind of what you're saying. I, I know that you kind of were a little bit more predictive of some of the, the, the negative things with violence, but why do you think especially since it's what we talked about the first time, like you haven't really heard anything out of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I know everyone was kind of gearing up for the Rittenhouse verdict. And then when that happened, you know, a lot of this country was under the 
<laughs> under the idea that Kyle Rittenhouse killed two black Americans, which he didn't. Um, but nothing really came from that either. It's like, you know, there was some initial whatever, but there was no real violence. And like I said, you haven't really heard from the Black Lives Matter movement or anybody, Antifa even, really for most of 2021. Why do you think that was? Well, I, you know, and I think I've said this the last time we, we talked, but I, I tend to look at Black Lives Matter as more of an astroturfed operation um, than a lot of people do. Now, I, I, I caveat that by saying that I believe that there are definitely people that were in the protests and the riots that were spontaneous, that were um, upset by what had happened and were genuinely you know, protesting for what they believed. And I, so I definitely, I'm not saying that they weren't, but it takes a lot of organization to, you know, to spearhead a movement like that. It takes a lot of time and resources. It takes travel. Um, I don't think people realize how difficult that is to, to pull off. Even if, even if the entire country is upset, it still takes a lot of movement on the ground and a lot of coordination. It comes down to logistics, right? exactly and and you and i know that 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 doing anything with a group of people takes a lot of work and there were definitely you know volunteers and people that were like i said spontaneously attracted to the the movement but i tend to take a little bit more of a cynical view of black lives matter Um, i believe that it's there's a lot of astroturf there that comes from political groups that are aligned with the democratic party and so i think that I have always viewed this as an act of political retribution, mostly, and um, I think it worked. And I think that that's a card you can't play too often, and it's not easy to be able to, you know, it's a hand that's not easy to be played. But I, I think that's why we haven't quite seen that happen again since. I think it was well timed for an election year. I think that it was able to galvanize. And, and kind of collect the left together. Um, and, and now you kind of see exactly what's happened. I mean, where Black Lives Matter, where's their leaders, where are their leaders now, right? I mean, we've been reading some articles about a few of them who've been able to, you know, buy homes and kind of retreat yeah. into <laughs> Topanga Canyon, right? And yeah. so, I mean, that, and that's just, I think that to me just shows the, the level of grift and astroturfing that kind of goes along with this. I mean, if you go back to some of the first riots that we saw in Ferguson, there was a lot of that going on. Most of the folks that were involved in these, in, you know, these protest movements across the country, there was organization behind that, that I, I've always believed uh, to be, you know, uh, kind of covertly assisted by the Democratic Party and leveraged by that party. When you say astroturfing, what do you mean? You mean it's not, you don't think it's genuine? Is that what you're... No, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, there is definite like grassroots involved there. Um, but it's not, it's something that, I mean, like I said, it takes a lot of logistical yeah. coordination to do these kinds of things. And it takes a lot of like communications. And there's an infrastructure already built out there through these activist groups, which are all they all kind of feed back into the Democrat party. And so I think that what you're seeing with astroturfing is usually where it's supposed to appear as if it's a grassroots spontaneous Ah. movement. 
Um, but it, it's really not. There's a lot of there's a lot of money behind it. There's a lot of and I mean, I think a good example of that is, um, you know, corporate America completely aligned behind Black Lives Matter um, in 2020. I mean, you're, we're talking just incredible amounts of money pouring into the BLM coffers and and really like where has that gone? And so I think I mean, and I think if you were able to look at the money that was go flowing into the Democrat Party or part or groups, activist groups aligned with the Democrat Party, you would see a lot of money flowing into those different entities. Why do you think corporations were so adamant that they had to support that, knowing the controversy attached? I mean, I get on the surface level, I get it like, oh, why would you want to be against something, you know, that says Black Lives Matter? Got it. But when when you are a corporation that's that big, isn't your risk kind of minimal in terms of the fallout for like short-term repercussions? Because, I mean, it takes a lot to hurt a massive corporation's bottom line, right? Like if Starbucks didn't want to support Black Lives Matter, okay, well, I don't think Starbucks is going to be that hurt from it in the, in the long term. Short term, they might catch some flack, but overall, would they really? That's a good question. I, okay, so I don't want to go too esoteric on here, but <laughs> I, I probably will. I think, you know, I, I wrote about this earlier today on the Twitter. I was, there's, there's a crisis that we have been, I mean, this has been decades in the making. Um, many, many very intelligent people were able to see this crisis pretty early on back in the 1960s even, but we're, the you know the American civilization is undergoing a massive crisis, yeah. um, and what what's happening with this like this crisis is really centered around, I mean it, it's expressed through our institutions which are just bleeding legitimacy. Um, it's oh, yeah. not working, <laughs> and this is something that you know you and I as veterans are you know you're I know like those of us who have served kind of got a, a full mouthful of this early yeah. on where things weren't quite what they seemed. Um, there's a lot of veterans that we, I mean, if you look at the way that we view foreign policy kind of comes from a, a very kind of a reptilian way of looking at things. You know, we might've joined initially, we're all patriots for the most part, but we might've joined initially because, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I met guys going through is because they watched, you know, they watched Rambo or something growing up or, you know, the 9-11 happened every, there was a huge upswell of that patriotic fervor that came from our group. Right. And and we all at some point or another went and joined. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating that, but you know, after you've been in for a while and you kind of see behind the curtain, you know, you start seeing the sausage being made, you kind of take the, you remain a patriot, you remain, you know, completely rooted in your, your love of country and your love of your countrymen, but you also develop a real, um, maybe a more Machiavellian sense of how these things work. So we kind of got a mouthful of this early on, of this crisis of legitimacy that our institutions are undergoing, but the American people really were far behind that. And so I think this year we've seen that just come, I mean, it's really just come out of the woodwork. Uh, These institutions are just bleeding legitimacy. there's a big gulf between the truth and between authority and people are looking for answers. They're looking for something to hold on to. So going back to 
what we were what we were seeing before is why is corporate America, you know, this is corporate America, which is very much was, you know, propped up by the Reagan administration. You know, many young conservatives growing up always believed that free markets equaled freedom. So I think a lot of folks on the right are wondering why corporate America is increasingly blue. And my, my argument for this is there's a major class divide that's, um, that we can see in the United States. This class, well, uh, really in the Western world, this class divide is kind of old America. You're going to see your small businesses that are owned by a single individual or a family, which was the historic backbone of the middle class in America, uh, tend to be in places that are, you know, old stock. You're going to have like a lot of, you know, ethnic groups that have been here for a really long time, well-established. And then you have kind of the newer, uh, more cosmopolitan part of America that has a lot of capital. There's a lot of, you know, tech, finance, tend to be in the, you know, tend to be in in urban locations, direct access to university education. You know, there's, it's just a huge divide. So why does corporate America, why did they go behind, you know, fall right behind BLM? You know, I think that, I think that there is like going back to that crisis, we have a crisis between what we see as a moral, like is American morality, like what is our morality, you know, these moral values that were kind of common to everyone maybe 60 years ago. But, you know, there's this crisis. And I think a lot of people are searching for that moral certitude, but they also want the authority to back it up. And so Blue America tends to be, I think Blue America felt like this, you know, this racial social justice stuff is, you know, it's their way of finding a morality that works well with their lifestyle and the way that they see the world. And I think that older America is more rooted in a more traditional moral outlook. And these two things conflict and, and the, the way that they view authority conflicts. And so I think just the, I think where you have, I would, I would argue that if you were to take small businesses if you were to take kind of that backbone we talked about before that historic backbone, I bet that there would, I bet it wasn't very supportive of Black Lives Matter, if at all. But if you look at, you know, big corporate America, big businesses, multinational corporations, I think it would be very different. I just think it underscores that class divide and that crisis. Sorry, that was kind of a long answer there, but. No, I, the long answers are good. But I just, I'm just curious, like what, what the internal discussions like at those boardrooms would be, right? Like. Because they're not stupid people, right? They, you don't get to become a, a, a fucking global national or whatever, a, a, a company that, that size, but because you know, you're know you not good at business or you make bad decisions. But yeah, to me, it's still, it's just like, I, I, I was just very curious. I can't even think back on any company that didn't just kind of fall in line. And even especially yeah. because around that time when you and I talked, it was, you know, we were gearing up towards the election of that year. But even, you know, I felt like it was very rare to see any support really for Trump or any of the Republican Party that were running from corporate donations, right? Like you always see that stuff. You always see like some companies will come out or endorsed by whatever. I just don't remember ever really seeing any of it um, because it was all tied to that movement that was going on in november or october september i'm sorry i came in september was like a really volatile time you know things were very odd 
especially, you know, yeah. we six months into the shutdown at that point. And, you know, you, that's a whole other conversation we'll get into hopefully later. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I just find it hard to understand and I can't be the only one. I just find it hard to understand. Like there was zero pushback on that narrative and anyone who did, you were automatically pitted as a racist automatic. Yeah, no, that's well, I think there's a couple things at work. I would say the most important, and I've, I've alluded to this several times when I've written threads, but mm -hmm. you know, we talk about woke, like whatever, whatever that is, whatever yeah. that means, I, I tend to not really believe it's an actual ideology or a religion. Um, you know, there's always these, there's a lot of criticism of what quote unquote woke is and what we do about it. Um, there's always, you know, there's now a debate about CRT, which I think is a, a healthy debate to be having. We need to be confronting what this is, but at the root of all this, there's bone beneath all that fat and tissue. And, and, and really what it is is, um, we have a de facto constitution that's replaced the traditional constitution. It's a, it's a, the de facto constitution. Was yeah, born you were writing about this earlier, right? I think I read some of this today. Right, right. So there's the, the de facto constitution was essentially um, inaugurated in the 1960s with the, with the Civil Rights Acts, and you kind of had the birth of a new nation. Um, this is a nation that, you know, the, it transcended the old and it invalidated over time a lot of the old constitutional protections and norms that had been with the country for a long time. One of those being the freedom of association has been curtailed quite, quite a bit. So some people celebrate this, other people feel a loss, uh, but they, that's difficult to articulate. Um, and I think that, that what we're seeing now is, I think we're seeing the fruits of that, you know, decades later, what does that look like? You know, like I said, there's, there's, there's something hard and real there. I would argue that if, if suddenly this de facto constitution disappeared overnight, you know, pretend this is just thought experiment. Right. Um, I don't know if I think corporate America would be operating quite like this. Now, I definitely think that there were, as the nation has changed, it's, it's become a very different place than it was in the 1960s. I, I still think that there's going to be a lot of emphasis on things like, um, you know, social justice in a, its own way, but it wouldn't have the teeth that it does because the social justice movement now is backed by American law, the only law that really has teeth in this country. Um, and so I think when it comes to corporate America, most of these people are not ideologues. There are ideologues yeah. within big business for oh, yeah. sure. Right. Um, but these, there, there tends to be, I, I, I tend to believe that ideology is just a bridge to get to power. And so when you're flexing power, you'll use ideology to kind of conceal what you really want, what your true intentions are. And it works wonders among um, kind of a, a bewildered public. They, you know, they don't see this. They don't realize that when corporations want cheap labor from abroad, you know, and they say things like how we want to have a you know, more diverse society and how we want to help people that are in need, you know, really there, there's a huge benefit to these corporations for, for doing so. But all they have to do is it's very, it's a good ROI. You just have to kind of trot out your compassion and empathy. Um, you design, 
you know, you kind of design your PR pitch around your interests and, and kind of cover it in that nice, you know, cozy veneer. And then, you know, the public likes it and then you're good to go. And so I think, you know, when it comes to Black Lives Matter and these things, I think people were genuinely horrified with what happened. A lot of people. I don't think that, I think most people were, you know, for sure. I think most people did not like what they saw that happened to George Floyd. But with these corporations, I think they noticed that they could get a real win without having to really do much. You know, as long as they kind of put, put I know a lot of, there was a lot of donations, but as long as they kind of backed what they saw as the winning horse, they were going to reap a lot of benefits and kind of, they, they could kind of skate by on some of these social justice bromides while doing business as usual. And if, and if you recall too, it's these, these companies that back Black Lives Matter were, were benefiting greatly from the shutdowns. You know, they weren't, most of these big multinational corporations were able to function in an environment where most of their lower level competition had been effectively removed. And so it was kind of a consolidation as well. And also so many of them were targeted though during these riots. Like I remember in Minnesota first, you know, specifically, what wasn't Target like one of the main ones? Um, he had the yeah. auto zones and all, like these are not small. That's what really bothered me is just, and then you had so many people coming from out of the area. But you know, when like I understand at its core the purpose and the, the, the logic behind a protest, you know, I get that rioting. I don't know. I just, I've, I've never seen the value in burning down your neighborhood or your community. I just, that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't connect with me for some reason. Maybe I'm just, you know. Different. No, I think <laughs> I, no, I think you're, I think that's a, I think most Americans feel that way. And I think this is kind of where it gets it's difficult for us because we view these things on a very, like a granular, granular level, right? So we think about the people that are affected. We think about the workers. We think about yeah. the, the locals that need to go and buy groceries and now they can't. You know, we look at it that way. We humanize it a lot because we're regular folks. When you're dealing with multinational corporations and massive political parties and lawmakers who are, you know, miles and miles away from these issues, you know, a target taking a little bit of a loss or even losing a store is really nothing. You know, to them, it's, it's really not nothing. Yeah. Um, and so we look at that, like if that was a small business, that's catastrophic, ruins your life. Right. But I think this is the sinister side of, of what, you know, was called big business for a long time is that these massive multinational corporations, they don't feel the pain that we feel and they don't see things quite like we do. And I, and that's why you can still have, yeah, if, if San Francisco descends into the pits of hell or Chicago becomes even more violent than it is today, these corporations will just pick up and leave. You know, if, if, if they need to, if they lose enough money, they'll just leave. And they just leave these places devastated. And so I think that we're kind of seeing that sinister side of what quote unquote big business really is. Yeah, I was just, I, cause I was trying, cause I was recently in Chicago um, drove all through the city and I know which areas are considered, you know, violent and super dangerous and all. And that's, what's kind of weird to me is because, and maybe it because of, maybe it's because of the size, but in San Francisco, when I go there for the weekend, or if I go for a giants game or something, even in the nice areas, I am constantly on fucking guard. 
because of the because of the the, the mental problems amongst the homeless or just even I mean, there's been times where it's just normal fucking people and they look normal. They look well-dressed. They don't look, you know, they don't look for a lack of a better word, homeless, but they're, 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 they're off mentally. Right. Like I, I've, I've witnessed like walking back to the, to my car after a game at like nine 30 in the afternoon or in the evening and, and seeing like some dude right outside of the Harvard, the Wharton school of business section right there in San Francisco along the water. And this dude's just in a full on argument with himself. And I'm like, all right, well, this is odd, right? And that's the whole city of San Francisco. Even the nice areas are weird right now. You know, you got armed security outside all the fucking high-end retail stores. It's just odd. And maybe because San Francisco at the end of it, like most people think San Francisco is a major city. Yeah, it's a major city, but it's not very big. You know what I mean? Compared to like a New York or Chicago. Uh, I don't count LA because it's a driving city and it sucks and it's fucking useless. Um, (laughs) It just is. Uh, But when I was in Chicago, like I I always stay in the same area. Like there are beautiful areas of Chicago where you you, like you don't you're insulated, I would say, maybe like you don't feel any of that danger. And then, you know, you can go back. I can go back up into my hotel room and, you know, look out amongst the city and think, wow, that's a beautiful area. And I'm staring at the the lake or the the Chicago Tribune Tower. And then I can read, oh, you know, 20 people shot on the South side. I'm like, well, that's why I don't go to the fucking South side. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is weird because that's what I think a lot of people think. And I just tweeted about this yesterday, you know, in my area, like Vallejo, California, you know, a thriving fucking city once upon a time before the Navy base closed, I think in the mid nineties. And it's just gone the absolute shit. Like there's certain areas I'll drive through in the course of my day. And I'm just like, I cannot believe this is an American city. I really can't. And it's never coming back, man. Like there's no, it's never coming back. Like, so that's what I don't understand or like when I, when I, cause of course I follow governor Newsom. He's the fucking governor of the state I live in. And I, and I just, his like false and it's not any different. Like if it was a Republican governor, it'd be the same way. Like it's such false optimism for the future of this state. I think. Because it's like, dude, why don't you drive an hour and a half from the fucking capital up in Sacramento and come down and look at just some of the absolute horror shows that are going on in this fucking state? Like, you don't have to get far. You don't have to get far off the fucking highway. I can, you know, we can go down to Vallejo right now and, you know, preferably you should have some sort of firearm with you to protect yourself. But like, it, it really is. I was telling this to Maddie yesterday. Like, I can't believe it's an American city. I can't believe there are American cities and this is just one example. Like, this is a big country. I got it. But you get behind the curtain of, like, the tourist curtain, you don't want to be stuck in fucking Vallejo looking for gas or, or trying to, you know, get some food because you've been driving for a long time on the highway. You, this is not where you want to pull off. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a real tragedy because California, you know, I, I like to give Californians a lot of guff on Twitter. <laughs> but, but I will say, I mean, California is probably i mean by far everybody knows it's the most beautiful state in the union Absolutely. it's also 100%. best weather and and most importantly it has the greatest natural resources probably out of any loca- any single location in the world i mean this place is prime real estate for the entire globe yep. um and it was the backbone of of the middle class i mean it was the mo- fastest growing middle class in the nation i mean it was at one time i mean it, you know i know you know this since you're from there but it's 
California, it, there's just nothing like the California dream and that it was a real thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. something that is a tragedy to me to watch happen. But, you know, it's there's a few things that are really interesting about that because you have you have the fastest growing middle class in the country for so long. Some of the most innovative places on the face of the earth. Some people with, you know, your, in, your neurological, you know, power in that area in, in many pockets of California, just unprecedented. But now you have this situation where you have a state that it's, it's top, you know, it's what you would call it. It's like high level upper class is approximately the same size as its lowest class. So your middle class has shrink has shrunk to, you know, a very, very small compared to what it was. And now you have a large upper class and a large lower class or underclass. And you only really see this in the country. I, I, I kind of checked into this by using Gini coefficients and uh, measuring kind of the, the, you know, your upper class and underclass, but you only really see this in the United States and I, Massachusetts is one of them. And I think Connecticut, and then where this is close, like for California, it's closest, you know, approximate place outside of the United States is Brazil. Uh, some of these South American countries have kind of some of those same, that same structure that California now has. And, and that, you know, and it kind of, it kind of opens this, people always wonder like, why, why are they doing this? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't someone like Governor Newsom see the problem, see that this is, it's, it's creating an untenable situation. It's unsustainable. Right. I, you know, I have friends that are in California that we talk all the time about this. And it's hard, but I think people need to understand there's a concept called anarcho-tyranny. And I think that this is, this really, to me, explains a lot of, of the despair in California is political leaders, political leaders can use the anarchy in a tyrannical, anarchy in their own locations in a tyrannical way. Um, when you have a powerless group of people and all that you can essentially extort them constantly, but they have no way, no means of defending themselves, no means of being truly independent. You know, you can take advantage of them and you can get them to do what you need them to do. And they're essentially trapped and they're trapped by these terrible policies. They're trapped by the violence and the crime and the, the decay. And I think that this is, you see this a lot in various cities, but California, you kind of see this everywhere you know where there's lots of people at least and i i kind of think that this is the new model i i worry that the united states is going to be look more and more like california and other places that it hasn't quite reached out and it's not because california is a bad place it's not because californians no, are bad people yeah. but it's it's this type of political class that kind of functions like these banana republic dictators that you have or maybe not even dictators but like an oligarchy in these other, you know, other places of the world. And it's really tragic. You know, there's a reason why, there's a reason why problems for these types are, are good things because it always justifies you extorting the public more and more. If you refuse to fill potholes, then you essentially can demand a, a more enlarged bureaucracy. You can demand more money to quote unquote solve these problems, which never really get solved. So you're just kind of creating more and more power and, and pulling more and more resources for yourself. The worst thing you get, as long as you're insulated, you can keep doing that. 
And see, and that's why I, you know, it's a kind of a joke on Twitter, but it's fucking real. And I'm, I'm saying it's going to happen is everyone's like, oh yeah, Texas is never, never going to happen in Texas. I'm like, I don't know if you guys remember, but California was a very conservative state once upon a time. You had fucking Goldwater, you had Reagan, you had all these fucking guys who were staunch Republicans that came from here. And I kind of remember where it kind of shifted. I don't, I can't hundred percent nail it down. I don't know if you know, but this was not like this 30, 40 years ago. And people can say all they want. Oh, Texas, this is where freedom is and all. And the same with Florida. Florida may have kind of staved off some of that, but I'm still not 100% convinced because, you know, I grew up in Florida. Um, Florida was, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a, a conversation for voting Republic or other than Republican up until 2000 when the presidential election with Gore and Bush came into play. And now it's, it's still hanging on to red, but it's, it's ultimately it's purple. Right. And then Texas is the same way. I will not be surprised one bit if Texas goes blue in 2024. And then if that happens, you're never going to have a Republican president in this country again. How, how could you? Yeah, no, that's, I, I'm with you actually on that. And I hate saying it. I like, you know, I know our, we have a mutual who loves to give the Texans hell. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, he's not you know, wrong, he, but he's not wrong. And this is yeah. the thing is, this is why, this is why I'm really fed up with like American conservatism as we know it. Um, it is just as responsible, if not more for hollowing out, the you know the civic culture of this country of hollowing out our communities and destroying the traditions that are you know that we we have only vestiges of them i mean these things were also destroyed by quote-unquote conservatives Mm -hmm. um and what texas is doing right now by inviting giant tech companies multinational companies exactly (laughs) and then see that austin's only going to spread and they there's no they have no protections you know this is the thing is for, you know, conservative conservatism in the past was not married to, was not married to this like free market ideology that, you know, kind of the libertarians, you know, kind of foisted on onto the right. It was, it was, it was very different. If you go back to, you know, Robert Taft, you know, long, long time ago, who kind of embodied conservatism during FDR, but, you know, you're seeing that there's there's really no defense when you when you view, you know, free markets as, you know, as true freedom, or you know, or you view prosperity as freedom, you're you're going to be sorely mistaken, and it's going to be too late. And I think Texas is going that direction. I see it happening in other locations too. I mean, I, I think that this is the thing that I I advocate. I think Americans need to understand that. You know, these businesses, prosperity is not necessarily their friend. Prosperity is not a bad thing. I know we all want to have our needs met. We all want to have, everybody wants to have money. But there's a trade-off, right? And, and I think that places like California already went through that. Um, I don't think it's all just because, you know, big tech came from there. I don't think it's just because of, you know, who, marrying big business to you know to marrying big business to conservatism but i do believe that 
I do believe that these these forces are not necessarily our friends. They do not respect tradition, which I think that is really at the core of what real, if conservatism even exists still, that's really what's at the core of it. And I just don't see any defenses in places like Texas. And, you know, and another one is immigration. I mean, nobody wants to talk about it because they feel like they're going to be labeled a racist which is ridiculous because yeah. immigration has always been a really important issue for the entire history of this country. And it's really not a racial thing. Immigration is, is about preserving your nation um, and preserving those, like I said, the tradition, those are the traditions and dominant culture that makes your nation unique and what it is. I think what these corporations and lawmakers have been able to do is convince the American people that any pushback on mass immigration is is racism and because racism is the most powerful is the, is really the most powerful um tool to manipulate people in society in american society today you know people don't protest when they have thousands if not millions of new people entering into their into their state or their communities and and these things it, it causes massive changes I mean, California would not have the underclass that it does right now, the permanent underclass, mm. if it weren't for mass immigration. And California would look very different if they had taken a much different approach to that issue. But that issue was very much spearheaded, not only by progressives, but by big business. I also think like there's a point, because you said a lot, but the last piece was, you know, the immigration thing. And this is what I've always never understood uh, like the, the Republican arguments sometimes, despite what you know, maybe their interests are from a, a corporate standpoint, but like, you know, their argument like, oh, we're creating a permanent Democrat voter. And it's like, do you guys completely surrender the, the idea of like making an intellectual argument? Like, I've never understood that. It's like, oh, because illegal immigrants come here, like, oh, automatic Democrat voters. Why? Why? Like they're leaving the worst leftist policies for the most part, especially in South America because they're escaping to something in their mind before they get here is the concept of, you know, when you really break it down, it's kind of what you just said, you know, it's fucking conservatism, the American dream, whatever. That's not a leftist ideology or ideological point, but we're surrendering it. We're saying that no matter what, they're going to come here and they're going to be fucking Biden voters, or they were going to be Obama voters, or they were going to be Clinton voters, whatever it was. And it's like the Republicans, especially in this country. Well, I, I think, <laughs> We definitely have some mutuals who make some points on them all the time, but we we've like surrendered the, 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 the intellectual effort to even try and make a case for them to vote the other way. Well, you know, that's, that's a really interesting. So this is kind of an interesting line to go down. I would, so I would push back slightly on this. I would say one of the re I do believe that most, well, most immigrants from, most immigrants that come into the United States that are going to be like low skilled right. or ha very highly skilled H1B visa yeah. know, folks usually going tech workers, they tend to vote Democrat. And one of the reasons why they tend to vote Democrat is because the Democrat party is, has been able to build a patronage network that relies heavily on immigrants. It's, it's something that Democrats politically and, and, you know, economically have taken full advantage of. It's been built. I mean, and this has kind of actually been a feature of the Democrat party for well over a hundred years. I mean, if, if not longer. Right. Um, and 
So when you come to the United States, you might have what we call conservative values. Let's say you're from a Latin American country and you don't feel you don't feel you don't feel very good about abortion. You might be a little more traditional when it comes to things like gay marriage. But when you have politicians that will essentially um, make sure that you are taken care of with, you know, public resources, uh, your, you know, the social welfare system, which you're going to rely heavily on when you're new to a country like this and all those, all those different kinds of benefits and privileges that come along with that. On top of that, if you think about it from the standpoint, when we go back to the kind of that de facto constitution conversation we had, it's now also because the Democrat party has this, you know, this orthodoxy dealing with, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, you know, your kids are going to be able to get a leg up by virtue of their ethnicity or background. It's very important. And let's be honest, you know, I don't fault people. I really, I don't expect people not to follow these kinds of benefits, not to walk right into this patronage apparatus. It's something that, it's something that most people would never deny. Um, why would you, why would you not? I mean, really, like, I understand, like, many conservatives struggle to see this because they think, you know, because they look at things very differently. They're coming from a very different standpoint. But if you're moving to a new country and you have the ability to have your housing paid for, you have the ability to have food on the table without, without you having to go to even additional extra expense, you're, you're really quickly going to overlook some of those other value propositions just to make sure that your family's taken care of and you have an opportunity. So I, you know, I don't, I don't personalize this in a way with people. I don't, I'm not one of those people who has contempt for immigrants as people, but I do understand that how these things work and what the effect is on, on your, you know, on the country at large and on your native born population or maybe more established immigrant communities. Now, what I would say though, is that what's really interesting and kind of going back to what you were bringing up we are seeing a shift with certain immigrant communities um, with their relationship with the Democrat Party and their relationship with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very, very interesting to me that there are these there are these locate there's these pockets that have you know, um, you know down in Texas, for example, right along the border, you have people that are of Mexican you know they're they're people that are Latino. Um, most of most of them have you know roots in Mexico, but they've been here for a while. Um, this last election in 2020, they voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, while still being Democrats. Um, you also saw this with Yunkin uh, in Virginia. Is some of the highest turnout for Yunkin was among Latinos. I I want to say when I looked at some of the and, you know and these aren't perfectly accurate, but when you looked at some of the exit polls that were coming out of I think Fox was circulating those. Um, I think Latinos actually broke as a as a group. I think they actually broke harder for Yunkin than than white Amer- like white Virginians did. And so there are these shifts, and I actually think this is one of the reasons why the Democrat Party is is acting so desperate is because they have to hold together this really shaky coalition with a grand narrative. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that narrative is not working with Latinos quite like it did in the past. So well, like I think you're going to see Americans. I yeah, mean, well, when you have a portion yeah. of the, the country that 91% for the most part votes one party, that should, that's a problem. That's not even, that, that doesn't even take into consideration any type of independent thought. Like in what world could 91% of anybody thinking one way make any sense? 
and no one pushes back on that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's I just, actually think, well, I, I think we actually talked about this last time. We I may think, have, we may have. No, it's a, it's a very interesting subject. So I actually, I understand why, I understand why black Americans vote Democrat overwhelmingly. And I actually think that it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I don't really like it at the same time because I definitely, I mean, and this is how the nature of political parties. I mean, right. the Democrats are not the only ones to do this, right? Is that you, you essentially kind of captivate a certain, your base, your group, a group that is your, you know, they're your, they're your clients, right? Um, you're their patrons. And so you have these groups of people that, that are, are, you know, the political parties use and abuse and manipulate constantly, you know, and Democrats are not the only ones to do this. Right. Um, but, but they have invested a lot in making sure that that 13% of the population, they can almost always count on that population voting for them. And, you know, the Democrat party does a great job of, of ensuring that those interests are, are at the top of the list, that they're at least, you know, that they're at least paid attention to and discussed and, and I think that they understand that if they were to lose that, if you were to split that 13%, it would be catastrophic for the Democrat party. I mean, so, but are they ever actually paid attention to once the election cycle's over? Well, you know, and this is, this, well, I, I don't think adequately, I wouldn't say adequately, but, but I, you know, but to kind of go back into that and why I think it, it's worth, I think it's worth many of us trying to understand is that what you're, I think it's this, you're going to have a better chance of getting what you want because the Democrat party understands that it needs to give their constituents groups something. Mm. And so, you know, that you're going to get something at the end of the day, whether it's, you're going to have, uh, you're going to get funding for, for programs that you care about or for universities or university system that you care about, or that you're going to be able to, you know, there, there's going to be issues that are really important to you. You know, there's going to be some kind of action. You know that if you're a leader in those communities, you're going to get paid. You're going to be able to have a job. You're going to be able to do something with the benefits that are going to trickle down through these political, these political parties, right? And both parties have different ways of doing this. Uh, but the Democrat Party is really good at making sure that they, they, have, they have their tendrils completely in some of the communities that vote overwhelmingly for them. They give them they actually give them something back, whether it's policy, whether it's actual resources through programs or whatnot that are that matter to these groups. And I think that if you saw Black Americans go over to the Republican Party, I, I just, I mean, if you're just looking off self-interest, which really that's kind of politics, I, I just don't think that they would be able to get the things that they, that they want and need. I don't think the Republican Party be able to deliver that because the Republican Party, as it is, doesn't really deliver that for its own base anyway. No, the they're, 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 they're feckless completely. They absolutely, and and they just I think one of the reasons why people tend to always vote Republican from, you know, what is it like you know working class white America now is because they really just don't have anywhere else to go, and they'll take a symbolic victory over yeah. trying to find themselves in a party that hates them, like the Democrat Party. Um, <laughs> that's what's why i'm just so i i and i talk about this probably every episode with somebody else but it's just when are we going to get to a point where we actually have viable third fourth fifth sixth party options like you can't continue to go down a path of a nation that's got damn near 350 million people on it or in it 
and say, you know what? It's, it's every two years. We need everybody to get on one side of the room or the other. Like that's it. That sounds really for a lack of a better term for a nation this big and is like advanced, whatever, whatever we want to describe ourselves as it sounds pretty fucking dumb. Yeah, no, you know, I, I'm, I love the idea. I think in some locations, multiple parties works fairly well because it creates coalitions. I don't think that will ever happen in the United States unless we're in a, a kind of a crisis point. We might temporarily have some. I think we're always going to go back to a two-party system at the end of the day. Now, what I think is, is important, though, is it still gives openings for change and, and where that kind of goes is I, I really hate both parties I don't like either of them and <laughs> yeah, I kind of look at it <laughs> I, I kind of look at it through like a Machiavellian lens as much as I can but you know to me I find that the Republican Party is the most useful to me why is the Republican Party useful to me well first of all they don't hate me like the Democrats um, second of all there's a lot more opportunity for me to influence the party and that's where I think that there is going to be a lot of work to be done to continue to push the Republican Party to become more, to be, to change, to kind of detach itself from its old, some of the old interests that always drove the party, some of the old orthodoxies, like I talked about that libertarian obsession, you know, is kind of at the backbone of old conservative, or well, not old, but American conservative movement. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's opportunities to carve into your competitors. So I look at this, one of the things that I wish that people, we can't talk about because people always misinterpret this when I'm saying this, but, you know, the whole BIPOC phenomenon, you know, where that's become like a, a mm -hmm. you know, some, a label that people toss around, really interesting to me because typically civil rights acts were, targeted for a certain group of people that had been historically oppressed for a very long time, denied their, you know, political and civil liberties. Right. And so the Civil Rights Act was for Black Americans who had a long history in this country. Um, over time, though, as we have, as we have, a you know, mass immigration has really changed, you know, the demographics of the country, as well as the political makeup of the country. Um, what we're seeing, though, is we're seeing that where, that where, the backbone of, of that, of the civil rights acts and, and the backbone of that whole government apparatus was for black Americans. It is becoming, it is kind of ushered in other groups where now they're kind of laying, laying claim to the historical grievances of black Americans. Now, I think that many, many black Americans that are political see this as a benefit because now you have additional allies that are, you know, enlisted in this common cause. The, the drawback that I don't think a lot of people realize is that's diluting, that's diluting your, I don't want to use the word brand, but it's essentially diluting your group's invested interest in this. So if you have been historically oppressed, you're a black American who, who's been here since the 1600s, you're as American as anybody else, right? Right. Um, and well, you're more American than many people. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> yeah. what, but what ends up happening is you have this very unique history, but now you have somebody who's, let's say, from India, maybe their parent is a factory owner and they got it here on an H-1B visa, but now they qualify for some of the same you know, privileges and benefits that are afforded through um, that de facto you know, apparatus we're talking about. 
um, under this BIPOC banner. So now they're right alongside Black Americans who have a very different history in this country, but they're still able to lay claim to some of the, the benefits that come along with that, right? And this is something that I think is going to create a problem, a bigger problem than it oh, already is. You can't just hold that coalition together. Yeah, yeah just yeah, listen it's to just, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's going to be really challenging. I think this is, I think the Democrats know this. I think they're watching Latinos starting to break from their party. Yeah. And they're worrying about this. But how do you hold this coalition together with this narrative if the narrative starts fraying? And it's naturally going to fray because it, I'm sorry, but the, this, fake, this fake unity between all these other groups, if you really get down on a, on, the, on a granular level and you see people are individuals, they come from very different backgrounds, I don't think I don't think Black Americans have the exact same history, interests, identity as somebody from India or somebody from Brazil. And I mean, I, it should be obvious to anybody. Or China. Has, or China. It's just it's absurd to think that that's how it is. But that's the narrative they have to use to hold it all together. I just don't think it's going to work. Well, I, I mean, I forget who this dude was at this point, but I was probably uh, it was it was it was. Tea Party era in Osceola County in Florida. I want, it was probably 2011, maybe early 2012. And I forget the young man's name at this point, but he made this great argument, I thought, uh, at like a little town hall. And he was talking about the fragility of town or uh, identity politics, right? And why it doesn't work because there's always another group. You can't keep the other group previously that was the focus happy and then after the next group there's another group waiting which i think kind of talks to what you were just saying is like you know if you're constantly trying to have these coalitions built where the the shared interest isn't as strong as one would think then you can never really keep that together but that's why i come back to my argument about why do we just assume the immigrant is not going to want a different path when it comes time for them to vote or why do we just throw it away in terms of effort so callously rather than just, hey, let's let's actually make the case for our system and our view of how we want to see this country because we don't. We this doesn't in 2021, this entire country, not just Democrats, Republicans, but it's everybody. Everybody's fucking just intellectually lazy. Right. They, they rely on their little snippets or their social media clips for their news. You know, it, there's a very few people who dig down the kind of find reasons to either challenge or cement their beliefs. Now, challenging your beliefs is fine. Not a lot of people do that, because if you can challenge your belief and then find reason to actually maintain your belief, then you've done due diligence. Right. I think a lot of that argument comes down to faith, free will. Right. So you you're a, a, a religious man. Right. Yeah. Do you challenge your, your faith? And, and when you challenge it, you come back with reasons that solidify those views. If you don't, that's fine. But I'm saying, I would say most people of faith, they challenge it. They, they put themselves into position to where they, I feel like they would challenge it and they come away stronger because they've solidified their faith in God, whatever it is. And I don't think people in this country do that when it comes to their political views. I feel like people have put themselves on one side of the room and there's there's no room or, or no path to come the opposite if you if if you feel like you're a democrat then that's it no matter what 
blind loyalty. Mm. Same with the Republicans, I think. Yeah, no, I think I definitely think there's going to be some of that for sure. I think one thing that gets overlooked, though, is I don't believe most people come upon their beliefs or at least what they publicly express. I don't think that they usually arrive at that um, through the, the, I think they're going to falsify the way where they get their beliefs from. And like you said, some of that's going to come from being propagandized or just, accept, yeah. you know, being a very low effort. But I think something that gets overlooked a lot is that I think a lot of people believe what power, what they know that they can get away with believing or what they should believe according to the power that they feel. So, you know, I think that if, if, if the U.S. government, well, I mean, I would, I would kind of go back to this. I don't think many, I don't think don't think that most Americans, because I believe that there's a lot of anti-white racism that's coming out of academia, the media. Um, we see it a lot. I mean, this critical race theory stuff, most of it's just, it's just, it's just anti-white racism wearing, you know, a costume. That's all it is. Yeah. And so I don't think that there are definitely true believers that believe in this stuff and that they push it. But there's also there there's also a lot of people that are simply reacting to the power that they feel, and they know that if they a lot of people's beliefs come from power, so if 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 the if the law of the land, um, if the law if the law of the land is heavy and burdensome enough, people will find any reason that they can to believe it. Because nobody likes to live with cognitive dissonance. Nobody likes to, nobody likes to chafe under, under something that they, that they cannot reconcile. It's much easier to simply accept and to, and to absorb it as your own. And that, that's where I think a, most people kind of come develop their convictions. And I hate saying that. It sounds cynical. I don't think everybody's like this. But I think by and large, most people will find a way to justify power in their own way. And if that's through their own purported beliefs, I kind of think that that's what happens. Um, there's a, right now that's kind of starting to come, it's changing because like I said, there's this crisis of legitimacy. So I think we're seeing a lot of truth or attempts to find truth that are just popping out of the woodwork here and there. And that's why we have all these campaigns against disinformation and, and so on and so forth. Um, but if, if power was more legitimate, I don't think we'd be seeing that. And I think that that's because most people will find a way to feel comfortable with it, with what they see as power, you know, and this is, this kind of goes back to that de facto and ceremonial constitution that we have. Yeah. Um, I think, I think this is why there's that tension is because yes, maybe literally we still have the constitution of the United States of America, maybe literally on this parchment, you know, it says that we have a Senate and a House and they represent us and we live in a, you know, a republic and it's, it's democratic in nature. But when you go to the reality of things, you know, that constitution is very toothless in many ways. You know, there are many rules and laws that are much more effective that are oftentimes unwritten or that they have been codified by an administrative state that never was elected, uh, that they've developed these things on their own and that they'll enforce those things. Um, and we have somebody like Dr. Fauci who will go in front mm -hmm. of a 
<laughs> a ceremonial body like the Senate. And, and people that. wonder, how, you know, how, how could Dr. Fauci, who's, you know, he obviously works for these ceremonial figures. How could he be so smug and, and confident, and, you know, so on? And it's because Dr. Fauci is the one in the room with real power. These senators and, and representatives, while on paper have power, it's mostly become a ceremonial job for them. The real power that they have is just the power over the people in a way to make the people feel like their interests are being, are being represented. And how they usually do that is just simply bribing people with their own money. But where the sausage is being made, where governance is happening, where even legislation and for what it really is, it's happening within this very insulated, you know, monolithic administrative state. And so I'm, I know it sounds cynical. I'm not trying to be like, I, this is a, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And I'm not saying like at all that like, I don't, I'm not trying to make an observation as, and being a pessimist. I'm actually an optimist, but I think we have to recognize that this is kind of where we are right now. And the only way to change that is just seeing it clearly so we can find ways to get that power back to the people for real. So that was that that kind of leads into my next question. Uh, I can take this a million ways from what you were just saying, but and I know you got something else to get to after this, but um, two things I would say. Culturally, where do you think we are and how did we get here, especially when you take into consideration the mandates that many places across this country are still going through many states and major cities for the most part, especially where I'm at, how those tie in. And then I would say probably the last thing, because I know you're going to give this a, a really good answer on, and it would probably take us to where it's time for you to move on. But um, the, the elections, right? How, how have we gotten to a point where for so long, I feel like, and myself was included in this, especially being in other countries where <laughs> new elections took place, how did we get to the point where for so long up until 2020, like no one ever considered the fact that there could be corruption in our elections, that we're the only place apparently in the entire world that's never had any sort of corruption or could even be considered. So I say that part and then I come back to the first part is like, if we can tie that in culturally to how we've kind of gotten to this point where no one, and I know we talked about it a little bit before we started recording and, and maybe we'll see some shift but man, this is going on for like two, it's gone on for two years, man. Like it's got to get to a point and oh, I wish I had her account on off the top of my head. Cause there's that great account in the city of San Francisco who is writing about like her, her coming of age moment, but she's still not quite to the point where she'd vote differently. Right. And it kind of ties into how progressives just ruin major cities. Like they, they're the ones ruining all the cities. Right. So mm -hmm. I know I just dropped a lot on that, but if you could maybe figure out a way to kind of respond to that, like A, the, the, the integrity of elections going forward, and then B, if, if we pull it back to a cultural stand, because like if you just watch mainstream culture, if, if there is such a thing from the social media narratives driven to like, what we see in, in music and art and theater and movies, it, it doesn't really align to the world or the, at least the country that you and I are describing. We'd like to see again, man. Right. Like how did we even get to that part? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Why well, I'm not one of those people. I don't believe that. Um, I'm going to commit a heresy here, but <laughs> I don't think politics is downstream from culture. I actually think that that culture is downstream from power yeah. and might makes might makes right. And that's just, I hate saying it, but it's the truth in this, in this day and age in this country might makes right. And I think that if people see the way things are going and they don't feel comfortable with it, they should understand that this is not emanating alone from, I think a lot of the time the people get abused and abused by this elite class into feeling like the decay around them is all because of their own moral failings. I don't believe that that's completely true. I think this is emanating from, from a place of power. And I think that some of it's deliberate, a lot of it's not. A lot of it's just distance and apathy from this class of, of quote unquote elites who I find to be very contemptible. We have every, every age will always have some kind of elite group or an aristocracy it's inevitable. And, and people who think that democracies don't have that are, are out, out to lunch. But ours are exceptionally bad. And I think that that's something that is, uh, I think we're seeing more and more of that, you know, that this comes from a place. Um, <clears throat> but so, you know, with the lockdowns and, 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 and what we've seen, I think we have to under prepare ourselves for the fact that the only way to get things to, to dis, I think the goal should be we need to dismantle the COVID regime. If we don't dismantle the COVID regime and lock it away forever, never allowing this to happen again, it, the, this will be used time and time again. It will be resurrected in perpetuity to respond to crises real and imagined. And we, we you and I have seen this with the global war on terror. You know, isn't it interesting that they're <laughs> they're turning all of those tools and mechanisms now that they now that business is gone dry in some of the other parts of the world. Now it's you know now we have the home front and it's it's you know ripe for the picking. We can you know leverage all of this machinery against the American people, and I think we have to understand that this is how this stuff works. It, it's it this kind of a thing, the nature of this technocratic regime that we live under. It doesn't just, it never self-regulates. It doesn't just go back to sleep. It doesn't just, you know, oh, the job's been done. We're going to dismantle everything and go home. Right. It only keeps growing and there's, and, and they keep justifying their existence and need to remain. So I, I think for a long time, Americans were kind of living in a dream world. And I don't blame many people for living in that dream world because things were good. And this administrative state where all the power resides, we just kind of, come along and, and do its job. And, and even though I don't agree with many of the things that were happening, you know, the American people didn't really see that they didn't really feel like they felt like they were being represented in some way, even if they weren't completely. But today we're seeing that our representatives, our representatives are mostly showmen. <laughs> like I said, they just bribe us with our own money. They really don't have very much power. And there's this entire apparatus that has all this power and all this authority and the ability to make decisions that we have no say in, and we're not even at the table, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so that is something that I think we have to understand. It has a long history. It goes all the way back to, I mean, this really started, I would argue, um, at the turn of the last century is where we really started seeing this. And with kind of like 
I think you can trace a lot of this all the way back to, you know, Woodrow Wilson. You can trace this back to a lot of the, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but there's a lot of like communist influence that started to bleed into the administrative state. And we're kind of being strangled by that right now. But um, I do think there's, I do think there, I think our political options are, are very slim now compared to the way where they were in maybe in the past, but I don't think all hope is lost. And I think it, it behooves all of us who want to be a free people again, to exercise though, to at least leverage those political mechanisms that we still have. And I think that that requires us to seize and secure our local communities, local party politics, yeah. making sure that we take our precincts, that we, focus on sheriff's elections. Most people don't even think about that, but that's the most powerful office in the land. And he's directly elected by you. Oftentimes he'll stay in power for decades. These are, these are mechanisms that we have to, to first secure our communities, but then second also to apply pressure upwards. Right now, the only leverage you have is a measly vote, which I know that everybody likes to talk about the importance of voting, but it, it basically has no effect on policy. Um, what I think is really important is, is that we need to understand that where you do have an effect, where you do have a good ROI is at your local level. You can take your local communities and take your state legislatures. And right there, you now have a foothold. You now have, you now have leverage. Whereas you don't, if you don't, if, if you don't do that. But going to your second question, it requires us to focus on the integrity of our elections. Now, I was one of those guys that right after Trump lost is the night of, I cried foul and I got a lot of guff for it <laughs> from a lot of people. Um, and I, I don't believe every explanation. I, there's a lot of people that see corruption in the, in the 2020 election where I don't. Um, I tend to look at it this way. There's always been corruption in elections. Anybody who tells you there hasn't, there hasn't been is a fool. And that seems to be the dominant narrative in our media right now, that there is every election is perfect. And it's, you know, of course, not those ones that the Russians stole for Donald Trump. Right. But everything else is perfect. (laughs) um, You know, but there's always been corruption in elections. It's hard to prove. It's hard to prove for a reason. And we've gotten really good at this. Now, I, I'm sorry, but. And, and I don't want to have, I'm sure I can't go into all of this, but I'll just say this. There's kind of an understanding. These things, these elections that are very porous in the United States, um, there is kind of a level of acceptable corruption. As long as you maybe change the rules in your favor, it's okay. As long as you influence an election in a certain way, it's okay. As long as you have access to the ballots and nobody can prove otherwise, you're okay. And this is kind of like this strange gentleman's agreement that's always been around. Republicans know that when your ballots go into a Democrat enclave and they're counted by Democrats, Democrats that are hired by these activist groups that are, you know, they run under these names like, you know, you you know, get out the vote and do all this stuff. They know what's going to happen. You know, if the other party gets access, primary access to the ballots, you can assume that something, I'm sorry, but you can just assume that things are, are not quite going to be on the up and up, but it's difficult to prove, like I said. Um, what this requires, so the Democrats are smart. What they did is prior to the 2020 election, they challenged all of those voting laws 
that would go against them. And they challenge laws against ballot harvesting, for example, in many mm-hmm. battleground states. They employed their super lawyers, Mark Elias, you know, and, and Perkins Coy. They went and challenged all of these election laws that, you know, would break in favor of, well, maybe not allow them to do what they do. And so they challenged all those and the RNC did absolutely nothing about it. The state legislatures did absolutely nothing about it. So the Democrats in their own gentlemen's agreement way, they won fair and square. They, they got things set up so that it would benefit them in those battleground states. And that's exactly what happened. So there's kind of two games going on. You know, when Donald Trump is, is, is outraged about the election and he says it's been stolen, you know, of course, the media is going to tell the people that, you know, the election was perfect and this guy's just crazy. And but there's something else going on here. It's that Donald Trump is literally saying the elect there was there was foul play in the election. And I'll tell you, I definitely think there was foul play in the election, but it was foul play that was under this gentleman's agreement. Right. The Democrats, they play outplayed, they outmaneuvered the Republicans. And these politicians know once that happens and you lose, you lose in their world fair and square. And Donald Trump didn't accept that. And so it's he kind of committed a big political sacrilege by by making that a central issue. Um, and so anyway, I the thing is, is if you're going to take your local communities back, if you're going to secure them and make sure that this blight doesn't enter into your communities where you don't have you know, outside money dumping into your local community and influencing your elections, and you don't have George Soros basically picking out your local school board for you, you have to secure your location. And part of securing your your local communities is making sure that you are watching your elections, that you put people in power to oversee your elections that will make sure that they're, they're managed in a respectable, clean, and honest manner. And that is something that's very important. It, Republicans have really been out, have been asleep at the wheel for decades on this, and they're and it shows. You know, I don't think they've had to lose all the elections that they've been losing if they had just focused on these things. So, sorry, that was a very long answer. Oh, no, that was good. I, I definitely good. think that there's a way forward, and I think the way forward is starting with the local. Yeah. So, <clears throat> how much time you got left? Um, I've got. Oh yeah, I've got I've got like another ten minutes. I don't know if that's too long. But. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Okay, so I got two two last questions for you because, um, well, the, the quick one is: do do you think Donald Trump runs in twenty twenty four? I I do. I think he will. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because I've heard it, um, haven't seen it yet, but you know, I think we've heard it. Um, honestly, I, I mean, I, it might not be a bad thing because I don't. I mean. I look again, I've said this before, what I'm witnessing right now with the current president, I I don't wish on anyone. Like he reminds me of my grandfather in his last year and a half. Like he really does. And I feel that. So it's not a political thing for me. It's just, I don't think this dude can hold up, unfortunately. And that's the, that's the downside of getting old. We're all going to experience it. But like, I see that with this man and I, I honestly feel bad for him. Yeah. But I don't think, if unfortunately he's not able to run, I don't think like, all right, what are they going to run Harris against Trump? Come on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, man. Like uh, there's a part of me that 
I don't know. Like I, as far as, you know, never mind. I'm not going to make this about myself. <laughs> this is about <laughs> your opinions and all. And I can get into this another time. Um, so my last question for you, and then we'll get you out of here because uh, I, I do want to hear your take on it because you kind of alluded to it with the, you know, what's going on with the, the current, you know, I guess mechanisms with the, the COVID response is um, how did you feel and, and what did you kind of reflect on during that pullout from Afghanistan that we so horribly executed? Oh man. Yeah. That, you know, that was really hard to watch. Um, I knew it was going to happen. I, I mean, I didn't know exactly. Yeah, no, I understand. Play by play by play. I knew it was going to be a hot mess. And I think a lot of us did. Um, It was hard to watch because it, you know, and I, I, when I deployed, I did not deploy to Afghanistan. So I don't have experience there, but I've lost friends there. Um, And it was, it was the focal point of, of, of a lot of like, of the military I joined, you know, it was very much things that were going on there. Um, Teams that I worked with were going over there. So it was one of those things I was very familiar with from an outside perspective within the military. And it was just, it was very painful to watch because I, I tend to look at the generation of Americans who stepped up to serve. It was a pretty incredible thing. I don't think people understand that we, we fought, you know, a 20 year war all over the world with a purely volunteer force, people that many deployed multiple times. You know, I deployed more than once, but you know, I knew guys that I worked with that have deployed six, seven times, you know, and that's just an incredible thing. I mean, that, that is an amazing group of Americans and I'm not calling myself that, but the people I know, the men I served with were some of the best blood of my generation, hands down. Um, And to watch that, that dedication, um, to watch that, be treated like it didn't matter by our policymakers and our lawmakers and the president and and past presidents, right. Was just revolting to me. Um, And I think it, I think it really demonstrates other problems. I don't think Afghanistan, the way Afghanistan was handled, I don't think that it's unique to the Pentagon or unique to, you know, I think that this same kinds of things are, playing out in other realms as well and we're going to continue to watch cat catastrophes like that take place but yeah no it was a it was a painful thing for me to watch i think that the fall of afghanistan it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily a direct cause but i think that kind of is the high watermark of american globalization as we know it i don't i think that we're officially in a completely new world now i don't think that the old rules of globalization apply and to me, Afghanistan kind of symbolizes the end of that. Yeah, I think that's pretty well put, man. There's the, I, I'd, I'd like to follow it up with some other stuff, but we'll save that for another time. I know you got, you got some other commitments you got to get to. This is Lafayette Lee on Twitter. You can follow him at partisan underscore O. What's the O stand for anyway, man? Oh, I just, I don't know. I, I just have, <laughs> I don't even, 
I don't even remember why I even made it. I did. <laughs> that's but, great though. All right. So that's partisan O on Twitter. All right. You're on Gitter now as well, right? I think that's how you say that word. Is it getter? Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's kind of like my insurance policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I kind of throw some throwaway stuff there as well. But, you know, we'll see. I think there's going to be some <clears throat> some stuff developing over the next couple of weeks and with the social media realm. Yeah, Twitter still has us all and still is the big dog on the, uh, on the yard. But whatever. So you can follow Lafayette Lee on uh, Twitter, as I said, or on Gitter. He's partisan underscore O. Um, for more big brain takes like you hear, uh, that's him. Right. Uh, and then, like I said, the only thing I didn't tell you guys about the whiskey tonight was that this is a five-year-old product. So there you go. Not bad, not great, but it's pretty good. All right. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> hey, good luck tonight on your other uh, endeavors. And uh, there will be bourbon. There was bourbon. And uh, we'll get here next week. We got, uh, I believe, Mr. Um, yeah, what's his name on Twitter? The Grand Marshal of Propaganda, Mr. WTIFIO. We're going to get him on here finally. Talk some stuff with the old, the, uh, the get a little bit more into the army. But anyway, there we are. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, man. Hey, thank you, Eric. Have a great right, night. You too, man. <laughs>